Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast where the hosts could be legitimately described as the old hotness. I mean, <laughs> I'm one of the old hotness for tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It's a good day. I do wonder about your, your statement, though. How old? Am I still smoldering because I'm younger than you? I mean, I'm certainly not hot, but at one point in time, I may have been. I think it was like a Tuesday <laughs> and it was a good day. You kind of wrap uh, 360 degrees around and get back to being hot again at a certain point. OK, cool. I'm going to have to figure that out. Um, I think it's going to take a lot more working out, but uh, life's good, man. What's up with you? Uh, life is good as well. Summer is in full force, meaning that uh, there are lots of distractions beyond playing board games, but somehow yet we manage to get them in. Yet we manage. Yeah, um, it's been it's been great. It's been really, really, really hot here aside from this past week, which has been kind of the normal cool summer that we get kind of mid 70s and uh, enjoyable. So I've been outside a bunch enjoying life. Awesome. And hey, wait, wait, shh, shh, shh. Hear that? Why can you hear nothing, Jake? Because I'm not in an apartment anymore. And I have my stupid dryer running on all my conference <laughs> calls and everything. Yeah, so we moved. Um, we bought a house and we're finally in it now. And I'm 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 a burb boy, big suburbs man. I still have not seen the Northwest Gaming Moguls offices yet, and I'm exciting to do so. Someday. I keep on offering to host, but uh board games in the in the summer, just for everybody to know, we always kind of have a dip in attendance just into the summer just due to the fact that people are doing stuff it's nice out and people end up having more plans and stuff like that so it's kind of normal but we haven't been gaming as much as we normally do and i think once we pick up this fall i think the the, the northwestern suburbs hq will be a big destination so in full force full force yeah and you know i think we also maybe have it worse somewhat this this summer than normal like i think there's a year-long backlog for some weird reason i wonder of like business trips and vacations and whatnot so like i've noticed that people that are usually really dependent are impossible to get a hold of the first half of this summer well even just a slightly bit of that we're kind of trying to shove like maybe a 12 months of stuff into seven months because we weren't able to really do anything until May is when kind of the vaccination was really normal. So yeah, it makes sense. I mean, eight months to do 12 months worth of stuff. And kind of on that topic, we've had a number of people inquire lately and just say, hey, now that COVID's not a thing anymore, have you guys thought any more about Moguls Con 2? Uh, yes, for the record, I've thought about it. And I've thought that this fall is probably a bad idea just because, yeah, things are running again, but they're not fully running like if we do this thing i want it to be you know no masks and nobody questioning if there should be masks right and i want it to be you know just the big old love fest that it was last time and i think the other problem the thing i'm nervous about this fall is that i think that there was so much backlog in events that if you look at like this fall is full right i mean there's a con every weekend somewhere or you know all the destinations are filled with backed up weddings and so on and so forth so just know you boys are thinking about it. Maybe a first quarter 2022 kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And the other thing, too, is we just wanted to we were kind of at a weird event size. Um, we could have done way smaller than us really easily or we could have done way bigger than us way easily. Pardon me. We couldn't do it easily. It just takes a lot more money. And we didn't know what the demand would be to get to kind of that next size of like 70, 80, 100 people. Plus, yeah, I think, um, you know, my goal is I want to do it bigger, but I want to make sure we can support that because, right. you know, we're pretty much self-funding this thing. So we don't have a lot of margin for error. <laughs> right. And we'd rather and we're fine with that. I mean, we're, we're, we're very comfortable. The game moguls is a hobby for us. We're not really trying to make money on it or anything. But if it comes to the point of both of us being stuck with a thousand dollar charge, 
because only 20 people come and we hoped 100 would. That's going to suck. So. Yeah, I'm going to say no to that, Ghost Rider. <laughs> yes, sir. So, anywho, if you're in the Twin Cities and you want to game with us, just shoot us a note. I mean, that's probably the better way. We can do like small little Saturdays or weeknight kind of things, and, and it'll be fun. So, anyway, for sure. But stay tuned. We are thinking about it for sure. For sure. All right. Well, we got a bunch of games to talk about. Why don't we start? We did. Speaking of road trips, I had the opportunity to be in Chicago for work. And as it turns out, we have some friends at game in Chicago, and they were all nice enough to pull together and host a little game night for your boy when he was in town. And it became Old Hotness Night. We'll get more, more on that in a minute. One of the games that I've gotten a chance to play twice over the past month that has quickly risen to my kind of favorite games pile is a really old game. In fact, this game is so old, it's game number one inside Board Game Geek. And I had never played it before up until recently. And the game I'm referring to is Democker, the classic by Carl Heinz Schmiel. That designer is always a favorite of mine because he's done a couple of other just marvelous games, uh, one being Tribune, which is a Mount Rushmore game for me, as well as St. Petersburg, which is a game I've only played online, but I'm now trying to find a copy of. So if you know of a copy of St. Petersburg, hit me up. Demacher is a game from 1986 that is about the election of the German parliament. Jake, are you hooked already? This is the most German thing ever. It like literally <laughs> sounds like we're German files being like, we're playing Demacher designed by Karls Heinz Schmiel. Um, and our last names are Klaffenstein and Teske. Like, what's going on? You I, know? I, I legitimately did hit the pause button on our first play, ran around and passed out German beers to everybody at the table because it just felt so right. Are we going to have like a 45-minute conversation about the last Teutonic night too? I feel like this <laughs> this, this podcast is going to take a weird left turn. No, no, we're definitely not going okay, there. Good. But, okay, um, you know, I might. I, I, I was tempted when I won one of the elections, kick up some Oompapa music just because that felt like the <laughs> right thing to be especially joyful about what the game is is it is a series of elections where you're trying to win elections inside the german parliament and there are basically four different states each with a varying amount of eh, call them victory points that you get for winning the election in that state and the game is played over four rounds after each round one of the four boards is removed from the game so the game actually condenses as it goes along and gets quicker and shorter because there are Basically, less areas that you can play in because any of the actions that you do each round can be done in any of the four states. What I think is really neat about the game is that it really somewhat cynically models how even elections work here in the U.S. So there's a lot of steps in the game, right? But there's an excellent card that walks you through all of those. And all of the steps are really easy. So, you know, the first things that you do is you buy media to try to influence public opinion in each state. Then you hold rallies, which can be later on turned directly into votes. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to match up your party platforms as good as possible with the sentiments inside of that state. Oh, and by the way, if you control the media in that state, you can actually change the sentiments in that state to better match what your party platform is. Weird how that works. Finally, if all that isn't quite enough, you can actually send a air quote shadow politician, which is kind of a uh, operative that can go do dirty tricks inside of that state to swing things in your favor. Mm. Once all of those steps are done, you basically convert all of the, your support into votes, and then you determine who wins the victory. Now, here's the catch. You have to have at least 50 votes in order to win the election. If you do not, you have to form a coalition government with another player that the two of you combined can get over 50 votes, which means that you both kind of score. So you may inadvertently end up giving somebody else some victory points in the process of trying to score yourself, which is kind of not that cool. It's cool if you're the guy that gets brought along for the ride. 
And finally, you get paid out based on how much support you had, and you have an opportunity to take a bribe. You can either take the bribe, which is kind of a lot of money in the game, or you can convert it into uh, like uh, party support, which is like long term income. Then you repeat and do it with three states, then two states, then one state. And the person with the most victory points at the end of the game is the winner, basically, is, you know, garnered the more support in the German parliament. Man, this was fun. Like it took a while for us to figure out and learn how to play. The game play length is rather long on the first play. It wasn't on subsequent plays, interestingly thematically it flowed so well i really felt that journey through there plus the acceleration of the game throughout the game made it come screaming into the finish line at full speed rather than bogging down at the end yeah that was that was a really neat attribute of it really really enjoyed this game jake and i i I hope this is one you would like because man it's a fun game well it's interesting i mean there's always the jokes about euro games being dry and boring but from an American who doesn't quite understand how parliamentary politics work and doesn't understand how German politics work, like, I mean, I, I know the the Hans, the Merkel, Angela Merkel, that, that's all I know. Like, it's <laughs> right. just so interesting because, like, this couldn't be a less interesting theme. However, no. I'm interested in playing it because it's been such an, such a tour de force in the gaming community for so long, right? Oh, it was fascinating. Like, the theme is so well implemented that every step of the way kind of makes sense and and it it felt weirdly familiar as an American, even though that, you know, I don't understand the German parliament at all. But you kind of look at a lot of those things and you go, oh, yeah, yeah. If I buy too much media in the state of Iowa before the primary, um, I can maybe swing thought there and more along the lines of my party's votes. Gotcha. So, yeah, think of these as like uh, in the U.S., think of them as being like primaries that you're doing. Like so you're trying to you're trying to influence and win the Iowa primary or something like that is sort of what it aligns with, maybe. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds cool. I'm always excited to try it. My concern is length of play. And I think our group is, how do, how do I word this? I don't think we're fickle, but I think we want games to grasp us early. Sure. And with a game that you know after subsequent plays doesn't take a lot of time. You've played it enough to know that. Um, I'm worried that first play of just dragging is going to leave a bad impression. So the first time we played it, there was just a lot of figuring it out, right? I mean, right. I, I didn't come into the game... I had read the rules, but I had never played it before. And there are a lot of steps, but the steps are all very well explained on on the rules card. They're very atomic, meaning that it's just like, okay, now you can buy votes by spending on this chart. How many do you want? Gotcha. You know, how many how many rallies do you want to throw? Just you can do them in any state you want. Just here's the cost chart. So they're all very easy to understand. They're just there are a lot of them. The first time we played was with five players. It did probably take four-ish hours with teach now you know we were also taking sidebars to get german beers and playing oom papa music and that whole thing so you know we were fully embracing it we also got pizza in the middle of it so it wasn't a clean straight through play the second time i played it uh down in chicago we did have to do a teach because this is the new edition and the people that had played before had only played the old edition and they're significantly different we got through the entire thing teach included in two and a half hours Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not that bad. No. And that was a four player game. Why does it say 240 minutes then? Here's what I think is going on. I think that there are two versions inside the game. There is a four election version and a seven election version. Uh Aha. I think the 240 is the seven election version of it because it definitely like if you knew how to play this, there's no way this is taking 240 minutes. You know, it's a it's a two hour game if you know how to play it and play the four election version. Cool. Okay. And I don't know that you need to play the seven. Like it felt really good to me. Now I've never played the old one. 
And um, I was informed many, many times about the differences between the old and the new one as we were playing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, watching a movie with somebody who's read the book. Yeah, that's exactly. (laughs) I just have, you know, I have to pause it here. You know, Gladriel does not do this in the uh, in in the books. And it's just ridiculous (laughs) that it's happening here. (laughs) I read it in the book. Gosh, I know, I know, I know. Yes. That's exactly what the experience was. I, I love you, F.E.K., but uh, that's not the game we were playing. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that with uh, Agricola and Caverna the next time. Like the entire time we're playing Caverna, it's being like, going to have you know that these would be cards instead of tiles in that game. So just going to let you know that. Just, just, just kind of keep that in your, uh, in your back pocket. Just remember. What I garnered out of the old versus new <laughs> version discussion is that definitely the old version is meaner. It's more interactive. And it sounds like it's 10x fiddlier. Like they did it. I think they did a good job of streamlining the newer version of it. So I think the old version, I can definitely see the appeal of why you would want to play that one and why you would consider that to be the better version. But I think you would hate that version, Jake. It sounded way fiddlier, even though it's meaner and more interactive. It sounded way, way, way fiddlier. Gotcha. Well, I'm excited to try this uh, 1986 game whenever we can, but um, I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm worried that a lot of the other group will won't like it because it seems like me and you like weird games and the rest well, of the group likes good games and sometimes weird games for here, us. Here's the thing. Some of our fellows have played it already because I did play it locally. So oh, true. that's true. we do have some people that know how to play it. That's so it true. Might, might not be that bad. I'm giving this a 4D on the mogul scale. I don't know that that's accurate, though. Like once you once you once you read the card and so forth, it's maybe only a three in difficulty. It's just there's lots of three level rule things, but the the strategy is definitely at a D level for sure. It's, this is a thinky game that to do well in it, you have to plan a lot of things in advance and, you know, get a lot of balls in motion to line up correctly. Cool. And that's super rewarding because there's very much a if I do this, then it affects this later on tieback. That just feels great. All so right, well, I'm, I'm excited to try. It's Demacher by Karl Heinz Schmiel. The new version just republished recently. So we're going to move from 1986 German politics to the late aughts is sometimes what I hear them said. Do you, how long does it have to be to recognize trends of a previous era? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like, I, like, like I can, feel like I go to the early aughts and just kind of go, oh, man, that's the like that. That's the most early 2000 thing ever. You know, or definitely the late 90s. Late 90s have, oh, you know, the dot com sure. era and so forth. That's. You know, yeah. there's very much a flavor there, but uh, but we'll go a decade, it's right? It's starting to form a bit for the uh, early teens and late 2000s. So imagine it then. I remember a lot of the color gray. I remember scene kids. That was a thing that doesn't really, I don't really seem to find them anymore. <laughs> um, you know, you're not, you're not pumping my chemical romance? Surprisingly not. I do listen to a lot of Midwest emo though, but I don't know. Midwest emo doesn't always seem to align with emos. Um <laughs> Because we've been playing a bunch of games that have seemed to come out from this kind of 2009 to 2012 timeline, and we thought we'd talk about them. Yeah, and I don't know what happened. Like, I was definitely into board games during this era. I had a pretty sizable collection at this point, but I think for me, that was the period of time that my kids were like zero to five, and a little more all hands on deck with the kids. I don't know that I was playing tons of board games back then. It was, you know, and, and the games that we were playing were games that were already in our collection that we knew, like still kind of playing Catan then quite a bit. Right. Because there's a lot of games from like 06, 07 too that were really good. I think 
Catan's 90, 99 or something yeah, like that. That's but, late 90s for sure. But there's a lot of other games too from 07. But it's been interesting because we've found a bunch of games that we played recently from this time. And I was in high school slash early college at this point in time. So was more into 40K and D&D. So I wasn't quite as uh, cool with the board games. So makes sense. I didn't have really any disposable income. Didn't really have any income. So. Well, and what's what's been great about a lot of these games is they've been recently republished and made available. Some of these games were prohibitively difficult to obtain or prohibitively expensive. So just a lot of these I've just never had exposure to because I had no availability to even try to play them. So now that they've been republished, I've had this whole new renaissance where (laughs) these old hotness games that have stood the test of time enough that they've been republished. I'm realizing how great and what an achievement they really are. And if I were going to be perfectly honest. It's kind of what I'm all about right now. Like I, I couldn't really be bothered to buy any 2021 published games, but I'm really trying to backfill my collection with these amazing games from the late aughts, early teens. Perfect. All right, let's talk about the first one, the one with the weirdest name. <laughs> sure. This is one I literally have to go in and uh, figure out the spelling on every time. This is Ginkopolis by Javier George, Xavier George. Sure, he's French. Uh, he's the publisher of Trois from Pearl Games. Twa being one of my favorite games and Xavier Georges being one of my favorite developers, I, I didn't think there was any chance I wasn't going to like Ginkopolis. Jake, having now played it, summarize the theme for me, would you? There is none. There's <laughs> tiles that go on other tiles and there's three different flavors. And it Jake, is probably the most abstract game I've played with you in a while. You didn't get the flavor of trying to build an entire city out of Ginkgo Bilboa wood? Surprisingly not. <laughs> and I'm I'm a big fan of all the different eco woods, you know, I've I've I know them all, you know, and so it was surprising that they just jump off the pages to me. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I don't actually think that in any way is this a um, criticism of the game, but come into it knowing that this is a really abstract game that later turned on to be a bit of a, one of our challenges with the game. We'll talk about that in a second. But what you're trying to do in the game is you've got a hand of cards that you're going to basically either expand the city or you're going to make one of your building taller. And if you make a building taller, you have ownership of that building and you can kick somebody out of ownership of that building by doing that. If you kick somebody out, they get a few random victory points. And at the end of the game, basically you score by the, you know, whoever has the majority of that cluster of the same type of building you get basically the victory points equal to all of the markers on top of those buildings. Basically, the some of the height of the floors is what it really works out right. to. Uh, there's some other things you do along the way, like as you play cards to make the buildings taller, you get to include them in your tableau, which gives you some engine building power. So like I had an engine last time that allowed me to get lots and lots of things by expanding the size of the city. This was not a route to victory, as it turns out, but <laughs> it was a factor in the game. Game's extremely short, like 45 minutes full up, plays one to five players. Any game that plays well at max player count, which this one definitely does, at that play length is something that has a lot of utility inside our group. Jake, what did you think of your play at Ginkopolis? Hmm. So first, I'm going to take a quick detour from that. Remember the player counts that we're going to mention for the next this game and the, the two following it, the three in total that are kind of from this era? Yep. Why do all the games now artificially cap at four and then come with an expansion that makes it worse to make it five? I don't know what happened in the designer world, and they decided that they don't need five player games, but there's so many games that I want to work well at five players. And the fact that all these three do, it's amazing. And Demacher, too. Like Demacher, I would say, is best at five. Right. And so it makes it like 18xx is also great at five. It's very weird that Eurogames have, at least in my perception, gone to this trend that four players is it. 
and I hate it. So what do I think of Ginkopolis? I don't know. I left it. So there's a couple of things. My main complaint with this game is it was hard for me to understand what was going on, and I couldn't verbalize it to Mark and Nick, who we were playing with, what it was. I kept on saying, like, it's not hard what I'm doing. It's fiddly is what you kept saying. And I'm like, "Mm, it's actually really not. There's not not a lot of rules. What it was and what we figured out at the very end with this brain blast, it's this game has zero theme and there's no theme to rest upon on what you're doing. And the actions are slightly more complicated than they would be in another game, which I'll explain in a bit um, at the next one or the, or the one following from this time. And couple that with they did have reference on your little player screen, but it was super very high we, level, very high level. And we also didn't use that to explain. And I think if you teach the game to someone else. Use that as your touch point for how everything happens, like use that as a guide. And sure. then I think I would have gotten a little bit more, but I was so confused and I missed a bunch of steps and this game's really tight, pretty interactive. And I did a couple of things wrong and it was a pretty tight score breakdown at the end. So it was frustrating to be like, I know I did two or three actions of my like, I don't know, 15 or I don't know, 30, any amount, I, a, a, a substantial portion of them I did slightly wrong not to my benefit. Sure. And it was kind of frustrating. Sure. Yeah. And I think that I think you're you're on point with that one. Once we finally figured out what it is, is that it is so abstract that the theme does not inform the steps that you do. You literally just have to by rote know what the steps are and follow them. There's not a ton of steps, but there's you're right. There's probably one or two more steps than you think there should be. And, you know, missing any of those. This game is is very tight. It's very interactive. It's very competitive. And little tiny mistakes will lose you the game in this one, which, by the way, I think is a big plus for the game. It's a brilliant brilliant design. And I I 100 percent understand why this is a lot of people's favorite game because of the fact that the design is great. But those first couple of plays until you internalize that step or reading the card on there, you could make mistakes that could cost you the game. Yeah, completely. And what I do find sweet is exactly what you just said, is until you learn how all the systems work and how to actually play the game well, it won't be the perfect play, but it's still good enough that you could actually get through it and slog through and see that something's there. Compare that to like 18xx, like sometimes when people play 1830 for the first time and no one's pushing trains, like think back on our first plays, that game kind of could suck. You right. Know? Yeah, but that's it's not a fair the point. game's fault. We're not playing it well. That's not really an issue that I found with Gankopolis because it's like, I see all the things that are cool, like, for example, the controlling of what cards are in the deck and stuff like that, and what you're going to pass to your person to your left. I just wasn't utilizing it. And I think there's a lot of room to grow with Ginkopolis, which I think it speaks to why so many people like it. I think definitely, you know, this one needs another play very soon, because I think once you have that second play and internalize it again for the for our listeners out there, I don't want to make this sound like it's a difficult game because it's really not. It's not intuitive is probably what I am trying the message I'm trying to get out. Right. And I think a lot of other games are intuited by the fact that there's either like a theme to rest upon or there's kind of other games like Caverna is very similar to Agricola. Therefore, I kind of have this rule of thumb on how to play either one because I played the other one. Right. Yeah. And Ginkgo just really kind of didn't have that as much, but it was good. It was a suboptimal experience for a game that I feel like could be very good. Yeah. Well, or an I'll add a third uh, subcategory to your thing about that makes it easy to play. Even if the theme is somewhat generic-ish, um, our next game that we're going to talk about doesn't have a ton of theme either, but the actions that you take are so simple that it almost doesn't matter. Right. So that's sort of a third subcase of that. Things that assist you in internalizing what the moves are. Gotcha. I think there's a 3C all day, though. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. This is definitely a 3C on the mogul scale. 
I would call it a two if the theme better supported the rules and it was a little more intuitive because there's not a lot like the teach is quick on this game. Right. There's enough like finding the tiles too, where it's a little bit more laborious if you like were to play this game compared to like King Domino or something like that. We just kind of like whip out the game and go for it, which sometimes those cleanup, if they're complicated cleanups or like round or phase advances can be kind of hard. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think that's another reason we don't give it a two. Yeah, there is kind of a confusing step that the first time you see it, you go, oh, why is this even there? But once you play it, it makes sense why it is exactly. where uh, you have to reload the deck with the new pieces that you put into play. Mm-hmm. It feels like you could go in and just put those in the discard right away, but it makes sense why you do it the way you exactly. do it. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, that's uh, old hotness number one for today, published back in 2012, just recently republished. This is a winner to me. This is a game I want to play lots more going forward. I think we'll play it a lot more and knowing that it works pretty good at five and And it's it's about a 45 minute game. Yeah, I think this will be one that we'll play again. So I think I'll be I'm going to not speak any more on it and it'll be fun to see my next opinion on the game when I play it again. There you go. Stay tuned for the revisit of Ginkopolis in the next episode. There it is. (laughs) All right. We've referenced this game a pile of times already tonight. And this is a game that I have played the living daylights out of over the last two months since I started playing it. I fell in love with this game instantly. This is Hansa Teutonica by Andreas Stedding, published by Pegasus Spiele. Jake, what other awesome game has Andreas Stedding published? Um, Gugong. I don't know if I'd give it awesome. You think it's awesome. I think it's good. Really good. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's another weird... We've got a lot of sub-themes rolling in this game, so if we're ping-ponging between sub-themes a lot, yeah. The, the other theme is these are all games that are designed by people that have designed other favorite games of ours. Hansa Teutonica, again, published in 2009, right back there in that late aughts, early teens era of game publishing that we seem to miss completely. Also somewhat difficult to get over the past few years, also recently republished in the big box version that really is anything but a big box and anything but a big box price. (laughs) The big box is in a normal size box. It costs about $35. That is 35 bucks worth of win, Jake. That's awesome. Hansa Teutonica, how many players? Uh, two to five. How long is the play? 45 to 90 minutes, but I think it's actually more like 45. Correct. There's no way that that's on the 90 minute side of things. I could see maybe if people were playing really, really, really mean and just kind of like making it so you take more individual turns, I think it could drag a little bit, but I don't quite think it'd get that long. I did see that in person, Jake, actually. Last time I played this, I played with the the opportunity to play this with Scott Peterson, the owner and publisher of All Aboard Games. Right. First off, seeing Scott play something other than 18xx games was a novel experience. Mm-hmm. And rare. S- second of all, he gutted me like a carp. Good. Like I saw he, he was the meanest player at this game and saw him doing things I hadn't seen anybody play before. Like he literally just got in everybody's way and gutted them the entire game. That's it was, awesome. It was awesome to see. Hansa Teutonica is a game about building trade routes from across the Hanseatic League area Hanseatic League uh, area of Germany which is ostensibly I guess northern Germany what you're trying to do is you're trying to connect a bunch of these trade routes and you're trying to upgrade your player board to be able to do those actions more powerfully there's only 5 actions in the game basically it's put dudes out on the map it's move dudes it's claim a trading house it is get more dudes back out of your collection there's not that many things to do inside this game mm. And because of that, you take two of those actions or three or four, you can upgrade that. Those actions are super atomic and go really, really quickly. So the turn velocity around the table is is really quick in this game. But man, it's constantly a game of butting into people, bumping them out, getting in their way, 
taking their things before them, hoping they bump you out. So hoping you get they them, bump you, you out. get to put more things and get some other cubes and economy controlling and time to upgrade so you can best stretch out that as much as you want and location specific needs, whether it be a circle or a square. It's really cool. But every single thing you do is so much smaller than Ginkopolis. I'm I'm really happy we're talking about all these games in this order because I think it'll be fun to cross-reference all of them. Yep, yep. And everything you do in this game is so simple, but I think it has the same kind of depth of play to it. Yeah, for sure. Because um, what Jake was referencing is, you know, you're putting two of your little workers out on the board. And when you complete a route, then you can claim a trading station at one end of it. But the thing is, you may not be able to put out all the cubes and take the action to claim the trading station in one term. So what the person after you can go kick your guy out of one of those spaces and put his there instead. Now, he has to pay a penalty for doing that. And then you get a bonus for doing that. Basically, that you can go pull a guy out of your reserves, if you will. And then directly put that on the board. So you actually sometimes want to place your guys in a position that you will get kicked out. Like, I'll just go and get in Jake's way with an extra spot. And then he'll go kick me out. And then I'll go take the spot I actually want, along with another guy as well. So that's a big component. And it's just such a simple little maneuver. Right. And I found it really fun, too, that the game, you're in charge of when it ends a little bit more than other games. And oh, yeah, that, that, that's always fun where you can control the pacing. This game ends instantly when one of three victory conditions is achieved, when they're like the little bonus tiles are picked up or when the 10th city is completed or when somebody hits 20 victory points. And it's literally not a complete your turn, not a complete the round of the table, not complete the round of the table and do another round of the table. It's done right now. Right. Stop everything. And let's let's tally the scores. So it's a legit strategy, one that I've used to win several times to just rush the finish line. Just pick up garbage points every place you can so that you rush the finish line and have 20 points, whereas everybody else is like five to 10 and they haven't had a chance to get their engine rolling yet. Yeah, completely. Our plays of this one, yeah, typically are around 45 minutes to an hour. Plays great. In fact, I would say it plays awesome at five players. The teach is really short. I'm pretty sure we could be up and playing in this one in sub 10 minutes without any difficulty. And the interactivity of this game is off the charts. Like you are doing nothing but interacting with other people. Correct. And it's, it's just fun. It's, it's a breeze of a game. It just moves. This has been a favorite. I've probably got, uh, I probably got eight or nine plays in it already. And Jake, when have you ever seen me get eight or nine plays of a game in, in the first two months of playing it? Well, and we did something that's very rare for us. We just played the game twice in a row. <laughs> well, yeah, in, in less time than it takes us to play another game. Right. It was just, hey, let's just run it back. So I'm watching in real time our little uh, working document that is guiding our notes for this episode. And Jake typed in 3C, and I'm going to disagree with him on this one. This is, two, two? This, is a, this, this is a two, Jake. I think it's a two. It's either a very light three or a strong two, and I'm fine with it being a strong two. I'll roll with that, because when you can teach this game in five to ten minutes without any difficulty, that, that to me is a two. Agreed. That is Hansa Teutonica by Andreas Stedding, published by Pegasus Spiel. Couldn't recommend this one enough. Go find a copy while it's still available. And rounding out our triumvirate of uh, Ooh. late aughts, early teens. Love that word. Games that we have just slept on until recently. Um, we got Keyflower by Sebastian Bleasdale, Richard Brees, and R&D Games. Hey, listeners, everybody stop. Take one hand off the wheel and raise your hand right now if you feel like you're listening to a podcast from 10 years ago. <laughs> right. This is a cool <laughs> one. I heard of this really great game, Jake. Probably 37. It's called Acquire. Have you ever heard of it? Never heard of it. Um, It's probably (laughs) like 13 different YouTube logos ago, you know, back when it was an old TV on the iPhone. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I'm just going to rapid fire the description that we have of this game because I want to see if anybody thinks that it sounds similar to the previous one. Two to six players and 35 to 90 minutes, rapid, simple turns with a quick teach that's highly interactive and designed or published in 2012. That's like all these games. What is going on with this era of game that we like so much that does so many cool things? So what you're doing in Keyflower, and we've talked about it a decent amount on the podcast, but I don't know if I've ever really talked with Mark about it at a semi-deep level. And you've played it again recently, so we thought it'd be a good good way yep. to do it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, you're different people coming over in the Mayflower, I believe, and you're setting up like different towns. And the way that you're doing this is by drafting these little tiles that you can put on your board, and then you can also use them to take actions. But the thing that's cool about the game is there's these different workers, which all do the same thing. But once you commit one to either a bid or a play, that's the color that can only be played on that tile from that point on. So if I bid on, a, if I'm the only person with green workers or whatever, I bid on something with the green, it's kind of hard for other people to outbid. But it's pretty simple um, unit conversion and kind of worker placement and really neat because everything you're doing, you've seen elsewhere, but it meshes together and makes something that's way greater than the sum of its parts. What do you think, Mark? I, I don't know if I've ever talked about, with you about this game in a <laughs> semi-deep layer. Sure, sure, sure. I own this game. This is in my collection. So right off the bat, that should probably tell you what I think about it. And it's something that I worked to acquire a copy thanks to our, our good friend Johnny Mac, who gave this to me for Christmas. Thank you, Johnny Mac. Because I loved it so much after our first play of it. Uh, this game's weird. Yeah, it's a collection of things that you've seen before, but I don't know that I've seen them put together in exactly this way. I almost compare it like last episode, we had a conversation about Mombasa, about how, yeah, everything you do in there makes sense. And it's sort of all things you've done before, but like other games don't necessarily inform how to play Mombasa well. And I kind of felt that a little bit with Keyflower, like that mechanism of bidding around the tile and then turning it a color. But then you there's like you actually have to like link up roads on your cities and stuff like that. It, it's weird. This is a weird game that kind of it has a unique feel about it, but yet really works and is a lot of fun. I like it because of the fact that it is sort of unique and I'm bad at it. I did not do well in our first player. I've not done well in any of the games I've played, but it's a game that I think that repeat plays will definitely have a lot of benefits and will also be that juice will be worth the squeeze, if you will. Like it, it this is a game worth spending some plays in to get better at. So the issue with the game is also the reason why it's really good. So it has these different phases of the games where you're bidding on these different tiles and not all the tiles come up in the lower player counts. I don't know if they all come up as the bigger player counts. I haven't actually really read the rules to this game. And then at the very beginning of the game, you have to choose whatever tiles you're going to put in for the end game and kind of work towards it for big ways to score points. The issue is quadruple would, the length of teach to explain kind of the strategy to this game compared to just how to play it. And how to play this game is yeah, simple as heck. But you'd probably be like an hour, maybe 45 minute teach if you were to explain the strategy and what each end game things do and kind of what you're trying to do and what's good to pair together and all that stuff. Or you could teach the game in 10 minutes, play it once, and then it probably took the same amount of time. And so the issue is the first time you play, you're doing stuff and it's probably going okay, but you're not doing super optimal for the end game scoring. And so not knowing kind of what the end is doing can maybe maybe irk some people the wrong way because the first play is such a throwaway play, way more than a lot of games that I think we play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, and it's not that you're getting dunked on, you just don't really know what's going on. But then after you play, you're like, oh, that makes sense. And I get why Jake didn't explain it because it would have been too much to explain. Okay, well, you want to make 
big rings with your tiles for whatever reason in case you get that one and it's good to focus on boats and if you get boats you probably want to get multiple boats even though if you don't really need that power but for the end game scoring you want to be the boat guy you know and all, all stuff like that so you know what game this reminds me of spiritually in in along those lines I think it has a lot in common with Lahav in that factor right. that, you know, you, you don't go and explain all the buildings and what they can do, but that's important, right? Knowing how the buildings come out and what you should be doing when is a really important part of that game. Yet it teaches in about 10 minutes and first play is a bit of a throwaway and then you go, uh, got, got it. it. Having a port is important. Which is a good thing. <laughs> and that's the way games should be that you learn and kind of you can't play it well the first yes. time you play. But the issue is in modern the gaming hobby, which is really buying games. That doesn't work well because you really like it seems like the modern hobby industry is like you play a game three or four times. And that's kind of it. And so having one of those plays, pardon me, be a complete throwaway is just it's it just doesn't seem viable. Yeah. The, one of the sub themes I would put back through all of these games is they all have that case where they're real easy to get started and yet have super, super, super amounts of replayability. Completely. And, and it's not. I have to play each faction so it has four plays in it. These are completely different plays, not special powers, just the games unfold in such a different way each time. You know, a lot of times due to the, uh, the the variability of just how the game is set up or the variability on how people play. In pinball, there's a statement that ball is wild because even if you shoot it in exactly the same spot, it doesn't bounce exactly the same way every single time so that adds variability to every game making every game unique and i would say that's a a key factor of a lot of these games that even though there's functionally no randomness other than maybe what tile comes out they play very different just based on the interactions of the players totally totally so i'm happy that you uh kind of forced the play of this one last time because it was a game i mean i brought it so obviously (laughs) i wanted to play it but this is a game because of its weirdness that i wanted to get out and play but i've been a little bit uh, afraid of diving into it just because Man, I couldn't remember how it worked. Right. See it again. Well, it's funny because this is one of the few games that I own that I've never really read the rules to because I, I'm always playing with well, Nick and Nick knows how to play it really, really well. So, yeah. And I still don't think I could set it up and teach it right now if I wanted to. Like, I'd still go. But I, I did again? recently research inserts for this game, which I think would be another good thing just to make it set up really quickly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a plus. Debating if somebody is really into this game, if you could like shoot us a note on what expansions, if any, are worth it, or is it like worthwhile to only play this game 10, 15 times and then think about expansions? So I know there's a bunch in there, and the reason why I know this is because when you research the inserts, they always say, hey. It also holds blah, blah, blah expansion. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm. That is a weird pet peeve of mine. I've considered buying expansions just so that I can fill up my mm-hmm. insert. Exactly. And, which is super dumb. Yeah, most recently, Lorenzo Oil Magnifico. I printed out the uh, the insert for it on the 3D printer, but there's all these empty spots in there, and those just those those bother me every time I open the box. I'm like, empty spots. Those should be filled. Bugging. You're a crazy <laughs> man. <laughs> for sure. So that's Keyflower. Sebastian Bleasdale, Richard Breeze by R&D Games. Jake Mogulscale. I think we already did this one. It's a 3C, though, if we haven't, or maybe even a 2C. It's got to be a 3C. There's enough setup things that makes it a little harder than Hansa, I think, and yeah. a little bit more down the line stuff, too. I'm fine giving this a 3C. So Excellent. Old hotness. Go find it. Right. It's good stuff. So we're going to transition a little bit. Also on the uh, you know player count and short play, small box, bang for your buck topic, and we're going to talk about a couple of games in a segment that we're calling Honey, I Shrunk the Games, or in golf terms, this is a this is these are the executive nine version of games that we already love. Exactly. And just to clarify for the listeners, these are just what we've been playing recently. We didn't mean to gather them in such neat little neat little uh, 
triplets, but it's working. So we're going to do it. It tells where our minds are, right? And this podcast has always been directly, literally just about what's tip of mind for us. What have we been playing lately? Where are our interests? Hoping that some of you will align with that and understand and be in the same boat that we are. And and lately, our, our interests have definitely been old hotness games and, and small box games. That has definitely been where our current mindset is right now with the games that we're playing. I'm going to take a moment and talk about a couple of those I've played recently. First one is one that I'm glad I played and I'm glad it actually arrived at my front door because that was in question for a very long time. I'm referring to Yokohama Duel by Hisashi Hayashi, one of uh, gaming mogul's favorite game designers of all. Published by Okazu Brand and locally by TMG. And therein lied the problem. <laughs> locally, how late was that Kickstarter? Like two years? Oh, geez. For a two-player smaller box cut-down game. already designed, one to clarify. It that was already, already a functioning This already project. existed in Japan. Yes. I held off buying the Japanese version of this one for two years because I'm like, ah, they're com- TMG's coming out with a deluxified version. that will be here soon. They're just kickstarting it. Well, like everything went wrong with this one. It got delayed a bazillion times. It arrived in the U.S., was packed incorrectly, and just sat in the fulfillment house for months. Awesome. Before, weirdly, one day it showed up. So, you know, I'm happy that I have this at all. Thank you, TMG, for writing this one out and actually getting to me because A++++ on the production of this game. It is such a beautiful little game. You know, in the spirit of everything that they deluxify, they do such a good job. But I think even among deluxified games, this one is especially pretty. They've done they've done a good job. Um, I think they've learned kind of what does and what doesn't matter. And I think that most recent one, um, the other Japanese design was a Chinese theme. I can't remember the name of it. The Emperor's Choice. Correct. I believe that one. Maybe it is Japanese too. I might be just super super rude about this. And it is. I believe. Well, that's a good point. Is it Japanese well, theme? I, I don't think know. they learned that they went a little too far with the deluxified plastic tokens. And like maybe there's <laughs> yes. there's a lane. Do what they're good at. And it, it's nice to see that they did a good job with this one. What they've done is they've taken a game that is already a mogul's, uh, you know, highly endorsed mogul seal of approval. <laughs> That's an A plus game for both of us in Yokohama that we've both played many, many, many times and condensed it down into a two player experience that manages to hit all of the correct notes so that after playing it, you feel like you've played a game of Yokohama, yet it took 45 minutes instead of 90 minutes and played well at two players because Jake here to tell you as much as we love yokohama not a game i would pick at two players exactly the fact that they were able to do that well is really a uh, feather in their cap on this system so what they've done is they've condensed it down it's a it's a board that you put out that in the normal game you put the buildings out somewhat randomly and then you the game is about traveling around those buildings well in this one you just put the board down and the buildings are laid out and instead of laying the little cubes to make routes to move your president around what you do is you have a handful of power cards so you have like three two power cards two three power cards and a four power card and you play over four rounds where you play out all of those cards and you just pick where you're like i'm gonna play the three power card on the bank but you have to play them low to high so you have to start with a two power card then you play your your three power cards and your four power cards and you can pick, you know, am I going to play that at the copper mine or am I going to play it at the bank? Like Yokohama, they're blocking. If you play there, you're the only person that can play there. And so you can't just go put out your four power card right away on the thing that you really want. You have to save that to the end. Right. At the end of each round, you get to upgrade one of those cards. Basically, you get to flip it over so you can make a four into a five or a two into a three. So your hand gets air quotes better every round through there. So by the end of the game, your cards are all three, four, and five power cards for the most part. 
like real Yokohama, you get to build buildings and trade shops inside of every little spot to give you more power in each spot to do that action at a better level. You know, you're doing everything that you're doing in real Yokohama. You're fulfilling contracts. You're going to the church and spending religion to get bonuses. You're getting technology that gives you boost throughout the game. And, you know, the rest of the game literally is Yokohama. The only switch to it is it's a preset up board and you have power cards instead of laying cubes mm-hmm. out there. Gotcha. Net net. We were able to start playing really quickly because we already knew how to play Yokohama. We just had to kind of twist that action sequence a little bit. And it played out in about 45 minutes. So full Yokohama experience in 45 minutes. Very competitive and tight and thinky. All, all the things we love about Yokohama, the original game. Enjoyed it quite a bit. I think they did an amazing job at giving you the Yokohama experience in a shorter, smaller version of that. Interesting. So I have a question. Yeah. It seems like the board game industry has really normalized, including solo mode stuff, mm. which does usually like a sideboard. They had new components for that. I think that's dumb. I think people who are going to play solo games are going to play solo games. Like, like if I'm going to play a solo game, I'm not playing whatever game solo. And if I'm going to learn a game, I'm probably just going to play it multi-handed. So it's stupid for me to play a solo game because there's usually such derivations. And I'm not the target market. Maybe there's a huge demand for this. I would love if board games that knew they were going to be from like, the like designer knows it plays great at four and five players or whatever, but they're making them put on the box down to two or something. I'd love if there was small changes made to components similar to a solo mode game to make a two-player game shine better. Oh, so like literally it's a, the, the two-player game is functionally a different game, not just a, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, same yeah. game, but same game, but crappier. Same, same, different. Yeah, versus, yeah, exactly. Because, like, there's some that work really well. For example, Castles of Burgundy. That's just a great game that works at two players and other things. They don't have to change anything. But I would well, and I would love... say recently, Hallertau, too, is a game that, like, plays just fine at two players. Exactly. But for Yokohama, it it really is not a great game at two. I might even argue that it's a bad game at two. I think I think a big component of that is what's the level of interactivity, right? right. If it's a highly interactive game, lower player counts tend not to be good. And you know, Yokohama, really part of the game is dropping your dudes around and getting in each other's way and collecting taxes from them and so forth. And with that just not being there, what's the point? Right. And so that's the thing is I would like to see two player mode be a term that is used, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. And honestly, this is something that if you just included, I'd have to think a little bit more about it, but I think you could actually pretty easily adapt Yokohama Big Box into this Yokohama Duel just by including along those power cards instead of dropping the things around there. Right. You know, set up the table this way and use your power cards instead. I mean, there's a few more differences to that, but functionally, they probably could have made Yokohama into the Duel version just by including the power card deck, maybe right. a few other but components. But maybe it's going to increase pricing or whatever, and that's why they don't do it. But if if... I think my main stance is if your game's really only good at three to four, don't put two on the box. Yeah. Unless you're willing to do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, psychologically, that's always a challenge, right? When you look at it and go, well, we can't even think about playing this game unless we're three or four players. Like, like Wildcatters. Wildcatters really should just say four players only on the box. Exactly. But they don't want to do that from a commercial standpoint. But <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess. I guess I'm asking for them to change their uh, incentive structure for no apparent reason, just so that I'm happy. So. But I guess the easier way to do this is just like, I'm not going to buy your games, so. Or just never play it at two. Just ignore that. Exactly. Fact. Exactly. So, well, that's cool. I'm, I, I'd like to try it. I ended up skipping it. If you could go out there and buy this game for $40, or you can buy the regular Yokohama for $60, let us say, would you say it's worth it? Spend your $100, or would you say, eh, just spend the 60 and know that two-player works, but it's not great? Well, 
So for your average player, yes, definitely buy the real version of a Yokohama over this one. But I do know a few, I, you know, I know a non-zero amount of people that like literally play a game of something with their wife every morning over coffee or something or every night they have a glass of wine and they play Pandemic again at two players or something like that. I know a few people like this. So for that particular use case, Yokohama Duel would definitely be the better choice. If you're, you and your wife are playing a game of this on a very regular basis, and it's only going to be the two of you, then you should own this one. Uh, the other use case is for dorks like me that are Yokohama super fans that uh, just need to be completionists about it. And I will definitely make a point of trying to play this specifically as a two-player game just because I thought the experience was so good. Gotcha. Cool. Loved it. Yokohama Duel by Hisashi Hayashi, originally by Okazu Brand, uh, published by TMG. Again, two players, 45 minutes, four rounds. And as a two-player game, this is still a 3C on the mogul scale. Cool. 3C Saturday. Hmm. Also on this Honey, I Shrunk the Game category, smaller version of a favorite already favorite game, we got a chance to finally play Brussels 1897. Jake, Brussels 1897 has a um, weird little bittersweet sentiment behind it, even before I had actually played it. Because it's 1897 in it? The the four four numbers (laughs) reflecting uh, the train games that we like, and it's not related to it? No, this was the game that I bought the literally last night we got together on a full game night before COVID. So so this always had that, you know, sitting on the shelf reminding me of the last time we all got together again. So... Like, it's weird that I had to wait until we were actually playing in person again to pull it off the table and pull it off and start playing it. But this did sit on my shelf for an entire year, unloved and neglected the entire time, even though I had bought it right before we shut down. 1897 is a small box version of the game Brussels 1893, designed by Etienne Espermen and Geek Attitude Games. Brussels 1893, but despite being the most confusing board game title ever for a train game aficionado, has always been a favor of mine. It has a Euroy, like, you know, again, Euroiest theme ever, right? You're in the art deco era when you're trying to progress art and architecture and interact with the denizens of Brussels and so on and so forth. But it's a really engaging Euro game that I've always enjoyed playing. And so therefore I thought, hey, a small box version be great. of the same game would have some utility in my world. I'm going to go a little tear on this one. Anybody that expects a blank, the card game, to take up less table space than the original game is fooling themselves. Right. They just end up dividing the board onto cards. Right. They take up just as much, if not more games. I mean, the uh, the worst offender in that game was Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Oh, it's massive. That thing takes up so much more room than the original board game does. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely silly. This game does not save you any table space whatsoever. What it does save you is shelf space because it is a nice, small, probably six by eight by an inch and a half thick box that fits in your small box shelf. What I love about it is the fact that like Yokohama Duel, it really delivers what felt like the full experience in half the time. The core conceit of the game is that you've got a grid of action spaces, which are building buildings and acquiring art and so on and so forth. When you take your action, you can put any amount of money on that grid of, of items to go ahead and take that action. Now, you taking that action blocks other people from doing it. At the end of the round, once everybody has gone around the table and taken all their possible actions, then you look at each column and there's a bonus for who spent the most money in each column. You get to do a, a special bonus action, which is usually increasing your strength on some different tracking things. 
like the value of your buildings. Or the next part is you then go look at each intersection of those things and whoever has the majority on that intersection gets a bonus in points based on where you are on that tracker. I think it's called like the royalty tracker or something like that. So if you have the majority around a specific intersection of four cards, you get bonus points for having done that. Game plays once again over four rounds. It's over in about 45 minutes. And at the end, it feels like you played a full version of Brussels 1893. Jake, did I ever play Brussels 1893 with you? Technically, no. We tried to play it online on TTS. And for whatever reason, it just like broke. And we said we'd save and we'd play back. I wasn't having the best time with it. So I'm honestly just going to say no and try to push that for my brain. So I don't really have anything to contribute here. But the question for me from an industry standpoint, I don't know our time with the industry. I don't care about the board game industry. Do they think people will just buy the card game version of games they haven't played? Or is this like an expansion play? I don't know. I've always wondered that, too. Is it just like the, hey, I'm a super fan of the full version of the game. So therefore, I want to have the smaller version also. Right. Well, because Kirk's never or he hadn't played. I don't know if he has recently. He's never played the Castle of Burgundy, the regular game, but he bought the card game. So and played interesting that one and liked it a lot. So anecdotes obviously make data. I don't know. Yeah. Is it a case where somebody would somebody just go buy Brussels 1897 off the shelf, having never played 1893? Well, it's four years. It's four years new, newer than 1893. That well, that, that is a good point. Yes. And it's probably four years newer in terms of publishing time, too. Maybe there more. I don't know. Now, 1897 certainly would be easier to learn. It takes half the length of time. It's a little bit more of the... Mm, I wouldn't say it's a filler length game, but again, it's that one hour, 45 minutes to an hour experience, which we like, which we like a lot. So certainly would this maybe get more play than the original version of it? It might. I mean, if it feels the same and it teaches shorter and plays shorter, maybe it would. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so it's one I'd like you to try it. We really enjoyed playing it. The the couple of times I've played it recently, I played it once with my family and then brought it to a Wednesday night that you were not there. And it ended up being a, a pretty hard fought game. I mean, it came right down to the end and people were people were jousting pretty viciously <laughs> over the uh, the few points that were available to try to win. So That's it ended awesome. up being a real competitive game. Um, what would you give on the mogul scale? Uh, 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 you know, golly, it's 3C day. We're rolling with that. Just running it. Just because the game is small and fits in a small box does not mean it's simple and light. All right. So uh, that was our day of three C's. We talked about, uh, oh, there's one four D. We talked about <laughs> six games, five of them being three C's on the mogul scale. What a fun day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think as we're rolling back into gaming and I think as we're engaging with the games we want, there's a lot of games that we want to play. And those are the ones that are definitely bubbling to the top of the pile. I mean, I think we... I think we know our sweet spot, right? I mean, I think that's always been when we where we play the best is in the 3C to 4D category in that spot with, the, you know, the occasional side trips into the 2C or 2D. Yep. I think certainly if, if we were going to give the Gaming Moguls podcast a mogul scale rating. We're a 3C. We're a 3C. There it is. <laughs> How about that? Uh, Jake, awesome. Well, hey, I can't wait to see you at a game again this Wednesday night. Yeah, it should be fun. It's nice not having my life be so hectic and uh, returning back to kind of just the normal stuff, both in COVID and moving. So life's good. For sure. For sure. And well, my schedule ends up clearing up quite a bit over the next couple months, too. So I'm excited to get a bunch of the games in. And, and, and frankly, the tops on my list are the games we talked about today. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, good night, everybody. Hey, everybody. For the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark. And I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. 
feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.